So a couple of weeks ago, the Oscars decided to give Green Book Best Picture just so they could watch Twitter burn. And burn it did. And Austin, it's up to you and me to sift through the ashes and figure out if Green Book is the most insidious racist plot white America has ever leashed on a defenseless, mush-brained populace, or if it's just a nice little movie about a mismatched pair learning to get along with each other. We're talking Green Book. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Keir Sewitt, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who would love to sit in the backseat of an American classic with a blanket while you drove me around and handed me fried chicken. I could even teach you to write letters, Austin. And I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, producer, etc., etc., etc. And I'd be down for that. Yeah, let's figure out how to do that. I mean, not, not, not me feeding you, you feeding me, actually. Or no, we'll, <laughs> we'll hire a third person to feed us both. To be fair, I do feel like in this scenario, I'm probably more the Nick Vallelongo. You're probably more the uh, the Don Shirley. Yeah, probably. I think that's about right. I mean, you did say you did say that you do have do you do you have some Italian roots or no? No, no, I got no Italian roots. I got one Irish ancestor ages <laughs> ago. Otherwise, it's all German, baby. Oh well, never mind then. <laughs> yeah. Some guy called over here, a doctor. He's looking for a driver. You interested? I am not a medical doctor. I'm a musician. I'm about to embark on a concert tour in the Deep South. What other experience do you have? Public relations. Do you foresee any issues in working for a black man? You and the Deep South? There's going to be problems. Promise me you're going to write me a letter. No problems. Tell me that don't smell good. I've never had fried chicken in my life. You people love the fried chicken. You have a very narrow assessment of me, Tony. Yeah, right? I'm good. I'm the way I know. We'll be interacting with some of the wealthiest people in the country. It is my feeling that your addiction Oof. could use some finessing. What Why are you breaking my balls? Because you can do better, Mr. Balalonga. Dolores. I saw Dr. Shirley play the piano. He's like a genius, I think. Come on, take it easy. I prefer not to get grease on my blanket. Ooh, I'm gonna get grease on my blanket. This gentleman says that I'm not permitted to dine here. I'm afraid not. How does he smile and shake their hands like that? Because it takes courage to change people's hearts. What are you doing? A lot. May I? Dear Dolores. Sometimes you remind me of a house. You know this is pathetic, right? Put this down. The distance between us is breaking my spirit. Falling in love with you was the easiest thing I have ever done. P.S. Kiss the kids. That's like clinging a cowbell at the end of Shostakovich's which is seven. And that's good. It's perfect, Tony. So, it's 1962, and Viggo Mortensen plays Anthony Vellanga, or as he's known to his friends, Tony Lip. Because he's... Oh, great bullshit artist. See, I'm probably going to do a couple of bad sort of like Brooklyn accent things That's okay. Here, Vigo so does a bad just, just Brooklyn accent throughout the whole movie, so it's okay. You know, go ahead. How dare you? <laughs> anyway, uh, he's, a, he's a balance with the Copacabana. He's happily married, loves his kids, and he's got a slight case of being a racist. <laughs> uh, the Copa shuts down for refurbishment, leaving Tony scrambling for money. Uh, through a friend, Tony ends up with a job working as a bodyguard slash driver for a renowned black pianist. 
uh, Don Shirley, played by Mahershala Ali, who is embarking on a two-month tour of the Midwest and eventually the Deep South, still in the midst of the Jim Crow era. Um, Tony's job is to keep him safe, adhering to the Green Book, a motor guide specifically for black people that explains where all the safe hotels and restaurants and what towns to avoid are. Uh, Tony and Don initially clash because... Tony's a real kind of Brooklyn guy who likes to smoke, gamble, and eat a lot, including eating a whole pizza by just folding it over. <laughs> Meanwhile, Shirley is more high-strung and defensive. However, soon Tony becomes incredibly impressed by Don's piano skills, his growing perspective as he watches how Don is treated by hosts and the general public causes him to reflect more on his own behavior. Don, too, starts to warm to Tony's frankness and loyalty. Uh, throughout the journey, he helps Tony write eloquent letters to his wife, Tony's wife, obviously. Um, Tony also finds out Don is gay when Tony has to rescue him from a police bust at a YMCA, further explaining the ways in which Don feels unsure about his own identity. Finally, they reach the end of the tour. At the last show, Don is scheduled to play in Birmingham, Alabama. He has refused entry to the restaurant of the venue. Um... Rather than simply take this, Don refuses to play, and he and Tony go to a local black bar where Tony, sorry, where Don plays uh, the piano, and the two have a great time. The two realize they can drive straight uh, back to New York and get home in time for Christmas. Uh, Tony goes home, where he is greeted by his friends and family. Uh, he had invited Don to come join him, but Don had politely declined, and so he's at his home. You know, he's having a, he's, he's happy to be home with his family and everything. And then who should show up at the door with a bottle of wine? It's Don Shirley. Uh, so they have a nice little friend moment. Like, like yes, we, we, tr we truly have become friends now. And then Tony's wife thanks Don for helping Tony with the letters. And that's the movie Green Book. The most evil, insidious film that has ever been unleashed on America. <laughs> I mean, do you really think that people say it's evil or do you think that it's just that the particular political conscience is attuned so much in a particular way that this film is um, – it, it seems more egregious than we might say were it made 20 years ago, which which doesn't mean which, – which, which means then that, that films, they emerge in a political context. And so if we're going to judge them and we're going to judge the – reaction to them, we have to understand the context out of which they emerge and then the context that spurs on the criticism, right? I mean, and while certainly I would say that is a very, you know, fair and thought out perspective, I'm saying I don't think there's a lot of fair and thought out perspectives because <laughs> genuinely there's a lot of people on Twitter saying this film is racist. And I have to say, if you call this film racist, then I don't know what your gauge for racism is because I've seen some genuinely fucking racist movies. Uh, so, I mean, you want to call it simplistic? That's fine. That is a very, very fair assessment of it. Yeah. However, I think to call the film racist means that your perspective is really one that I struggle to take seriously. But yeah. I, I actually, I don't want to just jump straight into talking about the backlash, I would actually like to talk about the film itself because I feel like part of the shame is that people aren't actually interacting with the film itself. They're purely interacting with um, the, uh, the the social conversation a lot of the time without seeing the movie. Yeah, it's very I, clear to me I, I agree with people you. haven't actually watched the movie. But I'm going to tell you why people aren't engaging with the film all that much. Because it's not really that good, bro. 
It's like very milk toast, you know? It's very just, okay, it's a nice sentimental story about people from different parts of the world who can learn to overcome their prejudices or that can learn to be like, I guess Don doesn't have, I mean, I guess he has like limitations, but it's more about him finding his place in the world. And so it's about like this like sentimental you know, friendship that can emerge in the midst of struggle. I mean, it's very, you said something on Facebook the other day. You said you're having like a, like a nineties nostalgia, whatever, like something about like, you're really into like nineties. Dude, that's why you like this movie. This is a nineties movie. Well, here's my, here's, <laughs> here's my thing, Austin. You're saying it's a nice little simple story yeah. about two people going to get together. And here's my honest to God question, not a trolling thing. What's wrong with that there's nothing wrong with that but that's why no, i said I mean, it's milk toast no, I'm, I'm, I'm serious i'm serious because okay let's take this out of the prism i mean again let's take this out of the prism of this one best picture of the year i think this is a nice little indie movie that came out in um you know and then did incredibly well at toronto and ended up blowing up in a way that I don't think anybody expected because audiences really enjoyed it. And then immediately uh, people started coming out with the fucking knives. And part of the thing that people have to remember, too, is that anytime you see uh, anytime you see on the awards trail that people are kind of like bring the knives out for something, it's got a lot to do with uh, sort of shit that other studios are flinging at it because they're True. all trying to undermine each other. True. So, I mean, so much of this kind of like dumb clickbait sort of like news articles have been really sort of heavily pushed by studio interference. Like, you know, suddenly Nick Vallelongo, a, a, a tweet the writer made like 10 years ago, suddenly surfaces the day after Green Book um, gets best picture. That's not a fucking accident. And I'm not excusing the man's tweet. I'm just saying you got to realize that to a large extent, you're also being manipulated by the by by others, by, say, Netflix, who are trying to get Roma. You know, I think there was a, something that read that Netflix spent a, a crazy amount of money on counter publicity, trying to undermine other films that were nominated for Best Picture. So, I mean, you know, all of this is a mucky world that we're going into, which is why I'm also completely off topic. And what I said was, let's let's engage with the movie. So part of the other big backlash, though, was also because of Don Shirley's family that came out and were pretty strong in their condemnation of the film. Which I also yeah. think was misrepresented in many ways. Okay, so here's here's some of the facts about that. One, um, they're not executors of his, his estate, so they would, so the film didn't need to contact them. Uh, they're not portrayed in the movie, so there's no life rights or anything that they need to deal with. Um, and to a certain extent, one, things they've said have also been directly disproven by recordings of Don Shirley himself. They said that Nick Vallelonga wasn't Don's friend. Right. You can There's actual tapes of Don saying, I was, you know, how him and Nick were friends. So, I mean, it's kind of like... To a certain extent, you have to also say that there is – I don't think everyone's necessarily acting in good faith in all of this right. as well. I went on a trip to Japan like four or five months ago. If you ask my family, hey, did all of these things happen on a trip to Japan that Kier went on with Alex four months ago? They couldn't tell you because why the fuck would they know? I, I think there's actually very little in what they're saying that couldn't actually lay at the film as misrepresentation. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. So w when you get into reliability of narrators or reliability of observers of historical events, you're always going to have some hodgepodge of different 
perspectives, right? And so there's there's this is going to happen. This happens all the time. Remember this happened with well, the fucking wrestling movie with Steve Carell and Channing Tatum and um Foxcatcher. Thank you. Remember the guy, the wrestlers that were portrayed in that that got really sensitive about the sort of like implications of the the homosexual tension, right? They came out and was like, "No, I completely disavow this." And it's like, "Well, but you have to remember this is coming from a different source material, coming from a different perspective, coming from a vision of a director that's trying to explore masculinity in a particular context. And if it comes across that way, then you know that that's kind of something that comes across in the process of the art form, which is one of the things that an artist does is they take creative licenses. So I'm not too concerned with that aspect. I, I think what I would say is I just – more than anything, I'm not trying to stake a claim in the cultural debate. I'm more trying to understand where the controversy, com controversy comes from in relation to what you said earlier is why do a lot of people not talk about the film. And I think part of the reason is because the film just doesn't have a lot of teeth for one. I think it's kind of a simple film and I think that's problematic not in a vacuum but because it's made in 2018. If it were made in the 1990s, I think it would be different. But because in 2018 people are so sensitive to issues of the white savior, for example – as a but I don't think this is a white savior movie. This isn't a white savior movie. You know, in what ways does he save Don Shirley? Well, there's the bit when the guys are going to beat him up and he goes out and saves him. I mean, okay, sure. Yeah, there's a guy in the deep south and somebody uh, and and he gets hassled and like he, that's that's one scene. White savior to me, that's a that's a misnomer of what the white savior concept is. White savior concept is say something like, I don't know, the last samurai where uh, where Tom Cruise comes in and um, manages and, and tries to save the Japanese people. There's there's plenty of like male bonding films where one dude helps another dude out at a bar when he's right. getting hassled or something like that. There's there's two things that it's kind of getting squeezed into, which I feel are unfair. One is the white savior. The other is the the magic Negro. And the magic Negro or the the redemption of the like, bigot, which is also yeah. yeah. Related to the magic Negro. I mean, redemption of the bigot, okay, fair enough. I think there's actually some very interesting, subtle themes about race and racism going on in this. Um, but anyway, point is, the, the magic Negro is more like, say, like, I don't know, Charles S. Dutton and Rudy, who's like the, the, the black guy who's there to listen to all the white guys' problems and, 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 and fix them. <laughs> right, um, but right. But actually, I think there's actually something very interesting in this idea, though, that when you look at, say, what Valalongo is as a character, he's a guy who probably spends his who has spent time around black people and I think has a sort of socially learned form of racism where there's a sort of performative element to it. But I'm, I'm not actually sure. How I mean, I'm, I don't think Nick's going to be out there like burning crosses or anything. It's a much more subtler form of racism because I had a, f a conversation with a friend of mine who was like, well, if he if he hates black people so much, then why did he agree to do the job? I think that's the thing is I actually think his racism is just something he's never questioned. And I think that's actually something that's very interesting if you think about it from the perspective of. Um, that's how an awful lot of racism festers. It festers through a lack of knowledge. It festers through a lack of understanding. You know, it's the same way that people said that one of the things that helped drive homophobia down was, say, something like Will and Grace, where people started to feel like they knew a gay person. And I think there's actually some, considering that all I see constantly is everybody accusing America of being a racist fucking country, I don't really see why 
a narrative that's about a guy who realizes the faults in his own perspective is actually such a fucking bad thing. And I think actually what it is more is that people want some kind of like something where it's just a simple narrative about, uh, you know, black people telling white people off. And it's like, again, I think if you look at, say, a movie like Black Klansman, I think Black Klansman is kind of an an interesting counter perspective in a lot of ways. But my problem to a certain extent is to say, why can't both those narratives exist? What is wrong with having both films? It's this dumb thing where it's like, this film wasn't exactly the way I wanted it to go in terms of my politics. Therefore it's evil, which I find a kind of incredibly fraudulent um, assessment of how to look at art and how to look at film. There's, if you want to look at Green Book as simplistic, I think that's an absolutely fair assessment. But I also don't kind of see why you can't have nice, simple movies. And this whole, this is current year, therefore, how dare you make this, is also an incredibly fraudulent idea. Because, fuck's sake, why can't we, why, why can't we continue to explore things for diff, for the, through, through old-fashioned narratives? And you know what? There's a lot of people who are going to be far more inclined to watch Green Book than they are to watch, uh, to watch Black Klansmen. And maybe, maybe it does something, maybe it does something good for them. So, I don't know. I, I just, I think all of this is just hyperbolic nonsense that's just there to make people feel better about themselves. I don't doubt that there's an element of that, but I think it's also important to understand that part of the pushback is because one of the things that people are super focused on at the moment, and I think rightly so, even if the way that they're trying to get there isn't always what I would think of, of being like sufficient, is that they're trying to look at things from like a structural or systemic perspective so that racism isn't just something that's reducible to like a bad seed here and there. And what this film makes it seem as though is that Tony was just a guy, like you said earlier, who wasn't even aware that he was racist. He kind of was just a product of his environment and he grew up in a town, you know, where it was just kind of like that's how it was and, and he didn't even realize that he was a bigot. But, you know, like because he then was ultimately good at heart because he's kind of a decent guy who's got family values and he really does have like an empathic orientation, then as long as he finds, you know, someone who can correct him, then he can kind of be a good dude again. And I think what that does is that seems to kind of forgive, if you will, um, any sort of deeper structural embedded or implicit, uh, let's say, uh, I was going to say like racist, but yeah, yeah, implicit sort of racist leanings that condition uh, how it is that we that we kind of like function in our social lives. And I think but, that's, but that's how the does it issue. Forgive? I don't, no, I don't understand that. I don't understand that. Well, because it kind of absolves it. you how because it kind of makes it so that as long as you realize that you're all good, you're all good at heart. And all you got to do is just, you know, sort of like come to realize it yourself and you can be converted. There's this kind of really superficial sentimentality. You know what it reminds me of? Do you remember in the, the short-lived uh, Roseanne reboot? Remember the episode when there was like the Muslim woman next door and at first she thought that they were terrorists but then she comes to like meet them actually and then she starts to realize that, oh, they're actually good people. And then she like stands up for her in the grocery store or something like that. And then everyone was like, well, see, like there's like a nice redemption story. And I think you and I talked about this a little bit. People were offended because of a similar sort of thing because it kind of was a, a narrative that made white people who were previously racist feel good about themselves in their racism because, you know what, I just did not quite understand, but I can understand better now. Rather than really treating racism at the structural and systemic level, it kind of treats it as this just like 
this weak character flaw that can easily be overcome as long as you meet like a good black person or a good brown person. What happens if Roseanne's neighbor is a fucking asshole? Maybe not a terrorist, but an evil fucking dickhead who like kicks a cat or something like that. Or maybe not even that, but maybe it's just a person that has a scowl on his or her face. Then the person is justified for maintaining their bigotry because the Muslim person didn't go out of their way to change the white person's mind. Just like Don Shirley has to prove that he's special, that he's a good pianist, that he's good with words, that he's going to help Tony. Well, what happens if he didn't? Then that means that Tony would just continue the rest of his life being a bigot, and that's okay. He's justified because he didn't meet anyone to force him to change his mind. And I'm not saying that, that that doesn't need to happen and that people can't be educated and that people can't encounter things that broaden their horizons. My point is, is that the simplicity of this film is being criticized precisely because simplicity can be insidious. And I think that's the element. Say people do bad things when they're younger. They do stupid things when they're younger. Are we saying that people are always that, that they are not capable, that they're, that whether they change or not is irrelevant? You know, I don't like this idea that racism is somehow this kind of original sin that people are marked with for the rest of their lives. If people become better people and better themselves, why is that not a good thing? No, no, no. And I don't think anyone would say that. The question is, is where... I'm I'm just I'm I'm confused by this perspective this perspective yeah. that simply says that because the film set because the film looks at it as a positive that he has learned to change through no through through experience therefore it's simplicity no 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 I that's mean, not that's not it it's, that's it's, how but that's that's how people learn people learn right. through experience right but that's not what I'm saying and that's not I think I don't think that's where so you're saying the film is excusing the fact is excusing the fact that he was racist in the first place. Well, it's not excusing it, but it's giving it a simple way out. It's giving it a simple way of absolving it. And I think rather than trying to look at racism as something that is more deeply ingrained in the unconscious and in the institutions that that form our upbringing. And I'll be honest, I think part of this again is I think it's impossible to talk about the controversy surrounding this film without talking about it in the context of 2019. Like I said, if this film were made in the 90s or the 80s, maybe even in the early 2000s, it wouldn't have gotten the backlash that it did. But people are are much more attuned to how it is that we understand what racism is and how it is that we understand things like implicit bias and how it is that we understand human consciousness and how these these elements of bigotry form our very subjectivities because we're becoming more aware of that and then we're trying to wrestle with that in the public sphere i think that that's what makes a film like this distasteful to a lot of people now i don't think that but, the but film why, is why yeah. why but why are you also why doesn't the film also fit into some of those ideas is the fact that it is tony essentially realizing his own implicit biases it's him realizing his own you know issues and i also think that actually one of the things is and you can roll your eyes at this but actually one of the things that to me is that as someone who's a dual national has always felt like he's been you know in the he has never really felt like he's part of any particular country or nationality you know has been lived in scotland and you know felt at odds you know with sort of scottish culture and scottish people even though that's you know my background is i really gravitated towards the idea of shirley as a character who doesn't really necessarily feel feel part of any kind of group or organization and i think there's yeah. a lot of really interesting ideas too in the idea that if you are you know, being part of a culture or a group that you are told that you're supposed to identify with and you're supposed to be part of, and yet you feel somewhat, uh, you know, um, un 
you, you feel somewhat uh, alienated from it. And at the same time, I think there's something very interesting, too, about this idea of how class factors into an awful lot of our perception of race. And so when, say, Tony says something really naively, like, I'm more black than you, <laughs> there is something interesting in this idea of saying, like, actually, when you start, you know, I, you know, because I was thinking about this um, when I was watching Reggie Yates, when he went, did a documentary where he went to Ferguson. And I was watching him talk to Americans. And, of course, his uh, a lot of his cultural background is stuff that's very similar to, you know, my cultural background in the sense that, uh, you know, he grew up in in England, you know, when he was younger. So a lot of his sort of pop culture signifiers, a lot of the things he's going to remember are things that I would know better than the people he's talking to. And it's interesting how people relate on different levels about different things. So, for instance, like if he's talking to these people about the experience of being black, it's, of course, something I don't understand. But if he's talking to him about the experience of growing up and what he knows, he's going to know he's going to be closer to me than he is to those guys. And I think there's actually something very interesting and complex about how we are not just simply defined by our racial backgrounds. And we are also defined by culture. We're defined by upbringing. We're defined by what we're our, our likes and our interests. And I think that there, some of these things are things that the film is touching on in some kind of interesting ways. Yeah, I mean, you said a lot there, um, and I was trying to remember all the points to respond to. Uh, the issue between race and class is the first one. This is an issue that's dividing the left right now, and this is something that really needs to be understood. So you get a lot of people who are like black Bernie Sanders supporters, like Killer Mike, right? And he You also get black conservatives as well. Right. So, but hold on. We, let's not get into that too much right now. Uh, okay. But so someone like Killer Mike, who's being criticized from other black uh, activists or politically engaged people for being a big-time Bernie supporter because they're trying to claim that Bernie somehow puts class over race. Then you have people who are going to support someone like Kamala Harris or Cory Booker primarily because – or even someone like Hillary primarily because they seem to put race-based identity ahead of class, right? There's that famous Hillary Clinton quote where she said something along the lines of, you know, if you split up the big banks tomorrow, is that going to end racism? And so you have a lot of people then. There's this divide right now that is on like the left. And I mean the left, everything from center-left liberals all the way to like the hardcore Marxist left, right? And there's this debate right now. So from you to me. <laughs> right. Uh, so there's like this debate right now going on with how do we understand these issues? And you're absolutely right. It is a sticky issue. I am not like a lot of my more uh, class-first type of friends, and I'm also similarly not inclined towards the people who are just going to vote for Kamala Harris because she's a woman and she's black, even if she is a fucking, like, you know, appalling uh, lawyer who has defended, you know, certain elements of the legal criminal, like, retributive punitive justice system that I think uh, show her track record to be really seriously marred, right? Um so so I, I find myself in a strange position, but I understand the backlash, and that's all I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say it's because this film treats racism from a very, very limited perspective, one that today in 2019 we're trying to move away from. And it's not that it's a bad idea that Tony finds some sense of redemption and that – I mean I think that's a good thing for personals, for, for, for personal individual stories of redemption to be told. But the problem is is that – it's being criticized because it seems to, one, like I said earlier, put all the pressure on to Don being like the good black guy. Like what if he were just a grumpy fucker, you know, and he wasn't like super willing to engage with Tony? Then would Tony be justified at the end of it all? I mean I will point out there is also, for instance, the scene where Tony is hanging out outside with the other black guys, which again – 
kind of like brings an interesting class element to it. Right. Um, where he's like playing dice and stuff like that. And he's getting on fine with the black dudes. <laughs> right. So it's kind of like, it's not like Tony is only willing to inter- interact with Don. Right. I think, you know, I, I think again, here's my issue with an awful lot of this, which is sure. The film is not particularly complicated, but I also think it's a little bit like that whole sort of saying of we need bread and we need roses. Sometimes it's nice to have a fucking nice little film where two people find common ground and become friends. Not everything has to be about goddamn everything. And I'm so fucking sick of people finished, you know, coming back and going like this film suggests that racism was solved in 1962. I don't know where the fuck the film claimed that. Right. No, I I do see that. And this is where I I was going to go with I think what we could boil this whole thing down to is I think that right now any film that is made about racism where the black character or the black storyline doesn't – isn't like the uh, centerpiece of it but that is in some way peripheral or in some way secondary or in some way – is not like the most integral component or even let's say 70% of the storyline. I think that it's going to be criticized. Whether for 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 better or for worse, that's why a film like Black Panther is going to be viewed even though even though I think that there's a legitimate criticism about Black Panther as being this strange film where ultimately you still have the power structures. I mean, Killmonger is right, really. You know? I mean, T'Challa and the rest of the people are working I mean, with the CIA. I'm not sure I'd call anyone who wants to start a race war right. Well, but but but, um, but, but his point, I, I, right? I, no, no. But I mean, ideologically, I say my, my problem. My problem with Black Panther has to do more with that it's incredibly poorly structured. I know, film. I know. But hold on, let's not get bogged yeah. down. It. My point is, is that that just simply enough, T'Challa and them are working with the CIA. They're working with the very federal governments that like either assassinated and that caused segregation within the black community proactively. So you have a lot of people then that are within the black community that are critical of Black Panther, but then you have a lot of people in the black community that are like, well, Green Book is racist, but Black Panther's amazing. And then it's like, well, hold on a second. Wait, how? How There there are these weird tensions that I think are very difficult for people to work through. But the thing is, is Black Panther is 90% about black people told from a black person's perspective about a black superhero and so it checks all the boxes green book is 40 40 percent about a white guy it's 40 percent about a white guy i'm sorry 40 percent about a black guy 60 percent about a white guy you know and told from a white person's perspective sorry go ahead one could also well i mean also too it is the guy writing a fucking movie about his dad right it's it's his dad it's his dad's story so of course anyway point point is that if um if for, like um, the other thing that I would say about Black Panther is as well, you could also make the argument that it's uh, Americans appropriating African narratives and saying we're going to tell an African story and then we're going to uh, make it all about how uh, an African superhero has to save um, America by sort of, and you know the the last point is that they're going to put uh, a fucking. Uh, uh, you know, put put their resources into fucking Oakland. Uh, well, but after, it's a story you know, about the know. African diaspora, which is something that includes uh, African-American culture and struggle. So I, I get what you're saying, but at the same time, I think that would be the response, is that the African diaspora is something that incorporates uh, kind of all the places where the displaced uh, African or, or descendants, let's say, of, of African heritage have kind of been around the world and how they struggle. So I get what you're saying, but then again, but again, that's what they would say. They would say it's still our story, though, whereas Green Book is not. 
And I think that's where the issue comes. And I'm not saying whether that's right I or mean, that's wrong. Here's, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing that, that you do have to also push back on this, though, that there's this there's this broad assumption that it's the black critics versus the white critics. And that's not true at all. There's been plenty of civil rights leaders who've come out and and praise Green Book. You know, Quincy Jones, who knew Don Shirley, put, held special screenings of the film. This idea that the entire black community is up in arms is, again, it's this kind of... Uh, coastal elite sort of small kind of community sort of um, pushing this narrative and I think that there's a I, I think that there's a real problem with this whole kind of Twitter bubble thing yeah. where people kind of uh, th- this whole notion of the, the, the of, of cancel culture where it's just people getting um, uh, you know, looking to basically prove how impressive they are online by you know by 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 taking things down here's the problem in all of this is that i feel partially what i'm fighting against here is i'm fighting against this kind of this the 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 twitter mob mentality (laughs) because green book is a film that i went into into the cinema and i watched and i really enjoyed i thought it was funny i found it quite charming i thought the performances were great and i thought that was a that was a nice little movie i enjoyed it now, did I think it was the best film of the year? No. Was it? Would it have been in my top twenty-five? Probably not. Um, <laughs> right. You know, I thought it was better than at least three of the other uh, best picture nominees. Uh, one of which is was the by far the worst fucking thing unleashed on this year, which was Bohemian Rhapsody. So, I mean, in the broad strokes of things. I'm weirdly on the opposite side I am from Roma, which Roma was a film that I liked, and basically the fact that I thought it was okay meant the fact that suddenly I was fighting against people, you know, people, the fact that I was fighting against people calling it a masterpiece made it look like I was suddenly, like, incredibly anti-Roma. My problem is now I'm in a position where I'm kind of like, I think you're all being hyperbolic and over the top about Green Book suddenly means people act like I'm arguing Green Book is the greatest fucking movie ever. And I said this at the beginning. I said this when um, even back when Bradley um, uh, saw that it when Bradley put put up a post about how it won the audience award and said, I bet this wins best picture now. I said, this is the type of film that the worst thing that could fucking happen to it is to win best picture because all it will mean is that people will just hate it automatically because people hate best picture films automatically. <laughs> but I, I, I think the thing that also gets me about this a little bit is the fact that I'm kind of like, you know, it's this narrative of, oh, the film industry and the Academy are now racist. I'm like, Okay, so in the same ceremony where you saw, you know, uh, a lot of black people winning for below the line credits, you had three out of the four acting awards went to non-white people. Um, It was a pretty fucking diverse group. Suddenly the Academy is racist because the preferential ballot meant that they voted for the nice broad film Um, in a year. Um, in the year after that they gave it to Shape of Water and the year before that they gave it to Moonlight. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just a little bit like I'm really fucking sick of this really simplistic narrative. Right. That's kind of where this is coming. And I understand. The people who don't know anything about film are trying or don't know anything about the industry are suddenly trying to weigh in with this really simplistic narrative of just saying, oh, the entire film industry is racist. Well, first of all, the entire – want to talk about representation, f- that's absolutely fair. But to try and say the Academy Awards is racist is just ridiculous. Well, see, I'm going to – Gonna go out. I'm, I'm gonna say, you know, just like they say in the musical Avenue Q, everyone's a little bit racist. So yeah, the Academy is racist. But the question is, is what is that? I'm not Austin. <laughs> I'm perfect. The question is, what does that mean, right? And it, this is the problem: is the word racist now doesn't have any 
allowance for it being a term that's nuanced. It just means evil, bigoted, Nazi, cross burner, you know, hood wearer or something like that, right? Like, like that you're, mm-hmm. a, you know, one of the Charlottesville protesters. That, like, that's what you think of now when the word racist is thrown around. And the problem is, is that that does a real disservice to the idea of racism as something that is much more ingrained, that that affects us when we're at night and we cross the street because we see a black, a group of black teenagers, you know, with hoods and tattoos walking our, our way, or we check our wallet uh, if they're, or if we're on uh, an airplane and there are a bunch of Muslim men in particular, young Muslim men, if you don't have a moment of anxiety or whatever, like those are all, even if you then correct yourself and you say, oh man, what are you worried about, you know, um, or God, Jesus you're such a fucking idiot or even even if it enters for less than a split second that's still something that we need to be able to wrestle with and recognize that is part of the human experience right now but there's not there's no allowance for that when we toss around these words and i think you're absolutely right that part of this is because of the twitter bubble culture that is so prominent and how it is that we communicate in in our media um Sources, and that's not just Twitter, but it's all of the vulture headlines and IndieWire headlines and whatever else, pitchfork, you know, album reviews, whatever. It's just a quick little snappy headline that's really just simply about drama. It's about creating some sort of dramatic storyline to affect people emotionally so that they either feel good or that they feel bad. And even if they feel bad, that's okay as long as they consume or as long as they keep coming back or as long as they click, right? So that's all that matters. As long as they affect you in a way that they get a response from you that they can turn into money. That's all that fucking matters. And here's the problem. So your reaction is to the people who are responding and saying this is a racist film. They're responding, the people who are calling this a racist film, are responding to the audience members who voted this, the audience award, saying that this is a great film. So the point is, is that what you get is you get these dramatic, like, relational responses to these other groups, these other abstractions. One group is viewed as being like, saying this is a great movie. So then the other people are like, wow, they've inflated this to be great. My expectations are through the roof. This must be an amazing film because everybody's woke now and everybody understands systemic racism or structural racism like we do. Therefore, I'm going to go in this with a certain set of inflated expectations. Then they watch it. It doesn't live up to it. So then they say, wow, you guys are clearly racist because you don't understand what we know as being woke. So then they write their think pieces and then the response back to that, like people like yourself or other people, are that, oh my God, you guys are just overinflated because of this PC culture. And so what you get then is this warring, abstract, emotional, like fiery darts that are just being thrown back and forth. And this is making me want to quit Twitter and quit Facebook. I'm going to go to the move to the mountains. Do you want to move with me, you and me and Alex and Bradley and Troy and anyone else out there that's listening? You want to come with me? Let's just live out in the wilderness and we'll start our own little happy hippie commune where we just don't have these kinds of fights. I just want to, and we just have orgies, and we just bang each other all the time because but, at least then we're happy. <laughs> but I here's here's the thing that 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 struck me about this. Okay, so I think one of my frustrations again is that I feel like that people aren't willing to actually engage with the text of the film; they just want to engage with their own um, cultural um, wokeness. But okay, so I watched a documentary called Accidental Courtesy like a couple of years ago. I don't know if you have you ever heard of this. Uh, I heard of it, never watched it though. Um, well, it, it's about essentially a guy who's kind of made it one of his missions in life. Oh, never of, mind. Uh, I know what you're talking about. He hugs not. He becomes he's, friends he's, with KKK members. Yes. Yes. He I, I do. Makes I it his mission in life to rehabilitate. <laughs> yeah, KKK I did members. see that. 
<laughs> and here's here's my thought on this, okay? If we look at, and the way I, I looked at it is that it's a little bit like if he was a guy who was going and trying to rehabilitate gang members, people who had for uh, cultural and circumstantial and class reasons had gotten caught up in something, but ultimately they're not bad people. It's just they've been raised in a really kind of like terrible environment. And so if we're looking at it from that perspective, to me, there's something really beautiful about the idea that people can change and people can be brought and, and, and people's can, perspectives can be altered by by the fact that they are exposed to newer, broader experiences and more people. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons, too, why I think one of the things that I'm always grateful about is that when I grew up in London, I grew up around a lot of different types of kids. So, you know, uh, when I was um, my my uncle is gay, so I've always grown up around you know, the idea of gay people. So a lot of these things didn't really factor into me, into to, to my growing up initially. And what I think is really beautiful about that is the idea that experience, um, you know, and, and humanity breeds a, a greater understanding of, you know, a broader scope of people. And I just don't, for the life of me, understand why that is bad. You can call it simplistic, sure. But to sort of simply say that, therefore, this film is bad because that's the message that it's putting forward, I just think is also deeply simplistic as well. And it comes down to a sort of a, a, a desire for a kind of like vengeance narrative, where simply all it is is about sort of showing up the, the these evil racists and proving that they're all racism is just this inherent um, uh, original sin that people need to be punished for. Mm. And I think that's... And, you know, okay... My perspective is coming from a white person, sure. But I, I also just think in current year, 2019, because I'm so fucking sick of hearing that, um, I actually think there's something really important about saying that people can change and people can become better. I think that that's actually a fucking good narrative. And call me whatever the fuck you want because of that. But I actually think that there's that's not a bad thing. Yeah. So, I mean, and and and... By counter, you can also have, in the Best Picture nominee race, you can have Black Klansman, you can have Roma, you can have uh, Black Panther, um, you can have films that have uh, interesting and varied perspectives in other ways, but I don't see why having a nice little simple indie film about two guys who became friends on a two-month road trip <laughs> and one guy learned to overcome his cultural bias is really such a big fucking deal. Should it have won Best Picture? No, it wasn't the best picture of the year. But then again, when the fucking Oscars ever given best the best picture of the year to the best film of the year? When did that ever fucking happen? So that's my feeling on this, is people need to just calm the fuck down. And I say this while being incredibly Worked up. tense and annoyed. <laughs> yes. No, I know, man. I, I actually, I genuinely thought we were going to talk about the movie on this episode, and it just didn't fucking happen. Well, I'll so be honest. Into the same I'll be honest. I don't really have much to say about the movie. I think everything that we could say is what you can infer. Like, Vigo is Vigo. Like, yeah, his accent is a little cheesy at times. I actually think his accent's great, and that was why I got um it's only because that accent has kind of become a sort of fodder for comedy i think means that 
it appears that he's doing a bad job. I actually think he's doing a really good job. Yeah. I think Vigo's great. I think Mahershala Ali is great. great. I think their chemistry is great. Yeah. I think the film is very tightly structured. I think that there is a lot of really funny lines. I think it is a well-done movie. It better have some funny so... lines. It's fucking Peter Farrelly, man. Yeah. So, you know, again, these are all things that could have potentially been brought up. But now we need to to, 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 end, to end the episode. Yeah. Was... I know. Well, I, yeah. I will just say my last thing I'll say is I understand where all the criticism comes from. I also understand what you're saying. And I don't disagree that conversion stories are actually really beautiful. I mean, I still come from that Christian background where the idea of the individual conversion is extremely powerful. Um so, but but to be honest, I just really just don't think that this film's that great. And I think that if this film were just an indie film that didn't get the traction that it got, it wouldn't have caused the kerfuffle that it has. No, I don't think that's – and I, I mean honestly, before Toronto, they were saying this might be a VOD release. This was not yeah. – the people – they did not make this film with the idea that it was going to win Best Picture. Right, and, and I think that it's viewed as being so – uh, insidious precisely because that is just a reaction, a response that's trying to match the emotion of the other people that are calling it the best picture of the year or that it's winning the audience award or that it's this like lovely piece uh, on, you know, people that like conversion and overcoming bigotry. And I think that's what it is. It's, it's, it's trying to match the level of emotion. And so for me, I kind of look at it and I take a step back and I'm kind of like, uh, I mean, I think everybody's going a little crazy right now. And like I said, I'm going to move to the fucking mountains and I'm only going to watch movies. I'm only going to watch Kubrick films in French new wave cinema for the rest of my life. Well, and the, the, the thing I would say is that to, to round up this, to me, criticizing this film for having, uh, for not having enough scope on racism is a bit like to me criticizing, I don't know, set it up for not having a broader scope on the economic issues of the millennials. It's, it's, you know, kind of like, sure, that's part of it, but that's also kind of, it's really ultimately just a story about two people. And I don't think it's actually striving to be anything more than that. And again, not all stories have to be all things. People can, films can have limited scopes and they can be about specific things. And this was a specific story about two guys this isn't going to be the last time, by the way. I mean, I, in the next couple of years, we're going to hear this a lot. There are going to be other films that deal with the issue of race or that even portray, let's say, black characters or Indian characters. And I mean that in, like, people from India, as well as maybe uh, American, uh, indigenous American peoples um, and Muslim peoples. And they're going to be criticized because they're not handling them appropriately. But I think this is just part of the growing pains of any sort of historical epic, especially like the one right now, that is extremely contracted, that is dealing with really tense cultural issues so in a way i kind of view this as productive as weird as that sounds from like a like being just cold and calculated and analytical i kind of view this as like a productive conversation and as being something that's actually good for us to really shock us to thought to cause us to think through these issues regardless of where we end up on the other side i think it's really kind of a, a point of production um so i it's kind of interesting to me that's the last thing i'll say yeah yeah and you know and 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 all I want to say is that um, I would love to see Spike Lee just literally go to the Oscars every year and just sit in the front row and basically become the new Jack Nicholson and just make faces <laughs> and react to things. Did you hear about him I mean, storming I mean, out? Want to give him, Did you hear about him storming out? If they want, yeah, no, of course, of course. Do you think I didn't know about what Spike Lee was doing at a given point of the? Of course, I knew. Of course, I um, know. 
and and you know and if they want to give him a best director oscar at some point you know i'm i'm i'm, I'm not gonna quibble with that uh, so you know it's, someday but then that's what i'm saying we need more Spike Lee Oscar moments. That's what we need. Okay. Oh, jeez. And we need more Vigo's penis. There was no penis in this film. He's got a hog. Yeah, Vigo put on some weight. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. He wasn't as sexy, man. Maybe that's why I don't like this film as much. I my man crush didn't make me want to bang him. He made me want to call him like uncle or something, and not in a sexy way. So I've turned off. <laughs>